Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, Episode 2. On this week's episode, I speak with Professor Bruce Resnick from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. We discuss which type of four is best, writing for the Putnam, the connection between comedy writing and mathematics, and just when you should show up to teach. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and my guest today is Professor Bruce Resnick from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Hello, Professor. Hi. Uh, Nice to talk to you. Uh, it's very nice to talk to you. I'm very glad that you were willing to come onto the show. Well, I always like talking to students, so this is easy. <laughs> so I just guess we can start off with the uh, most basic and obvious question. Why mathematics? <laughs> just go well, for a nice broad one. I, I think uh, for me, it was always math. Uh, this was something I was interested in for as long as I can remember, and... I was fortunate in that not only was I interested in it, but I was good enough at it that I could make a living doing it. So it's just the way I I look at the world, and it's something that I have a great deal of pleasure doing. You had written a paper that was on your website. It was a review of a book, I believe, called From Zero to Infinity. Right. And uh, you mentioned that you had a real affection for numbers as a child. That's true. Uh, I just love seeing numbers and everywhere. Uh, my father was writing for a show, and he used to bring extra tickets, the unused tickets for the show, and I would just look at the numbers on the tickets and arrange them. Something I think I didn't put in the review is that at that time, he would buy copies of Scientific American, in part because at the back there was a mail-in card for the ads in the... Uh, in the magazine itself, and the mail-in card had all the numbers up to about two or three hundred, and I used to find that endlessly interesting. I, uh, and I still do number theory, so I haven't either. I haven't grown up that much, or I've just been consistent for a long time. Well, you mentioned that you had a you really liked the number four, but only when it was shaped in a certain way, I believe. That's right. Uh, when I was uh, I. I liked the four with the pointed top, and for some reason I was uh, somewhat apprehensive of the four with the open top. Uh, That's one thing which I think has changed as I've gotten older. (laughs) I'm less concerned with that, although when I do Sudoku or other puzzles like that, I still try to make my fours pointed. They feel nicer to me that way. Um, well, uh, you also mentioned uh, you mentioned Scientific American uh, just about a minute ago or so, and uh, in the review you also talked a bit about Martin Gardner. Now, Martin Gardner was a bit before my time, but I've definitely heard of him. What kind of effect did him and the puzzles that he had in Scientific American have on you? 
Well, it was just, it was every week there would be puzzles, and I'd know that there were some of them that were too advanced for me, but there were others that I could play with. Uh, there was one, I was introduced to the Four Fours problem from then, and I spent a long time working on that. And I think I actually almost subliminally learned a lot of names of famous mathematicians from uh, from Martin Gardner's columns. He's, he's actually, he's still alive. He's past 90. And I would recommend to your readers uh, that they get the big book of Martin Gardner's columns, which is still on sale. It, there's a lot of interesting material there, I think, even for people at the research level. Yeah, I've uh, I've definitely seen a couple of his problems. I it's I just haven't been able to you know read his column back when I was you know growing up reading Scientific American off and on. Right. Um, now you mentioned uh, research, and uh, you've also not a, on your website. You have a lot of lot of very interesting things that you've written on your website, and one of them was actually about research. It was an uh, introduction yeah. to research for undergraduate. Now, you uh, you have a seminar class on that, correct? Right. I've, for the last uh, six or seven years, I've been fortunate that my department has let me teach this seminar. And uh, we have anywhere from maybe seven to 15 students a semester. And what they have to do is I first make them try to figure out what it is in math that they like, and then try to work on a particular problem for a semester. And from my point of view, I'm less interested in having them solve the problem as to know what it feels like to do math. And part of what it feels like to do math is to not not only not get the answer, but not be able to look it up in the back of the book and not even know which book to look in the back of to find it. There's, you have to deal with a lot of uncertainty which is uncomfortable because people in any subject will tend to major in it because it's something they do well in. And it goes against that experience to try to do something that you can't immediately solve. Yes, that's that's very true. But it uh, can also be, and you mentioned this, it can be a very rewarding feeling even when you think that you have an answer, not even if you necessarily have the right one. Yes, uh, it certainly is a great pleasure to to think that uh, it's even better when you, when it turns out that you're right. Yes, um, of course. I, I had about 10 minutes when I was an undergraduate where I thought I had solved Fermat's last theorem. Unfortunately, I realized that my proof also worked for n equals 2, which made me think that there had to be a mistake in there. And <laughs> of course, there was. I, in, that, in that paper, you stress very much the asking of questions and not necessarily yeah. just... Uh, what question you're trying to solve, but questions about that question. That's right. Uh, I think that the most important thing for doing research in, in mathematics or any field is not to just take things as given, but say, what do you know? What does this remind you of? Where can you take it in a different direction? This is sort of a free-form uh, exercise. It's, it's not unlike, as, as I've mentioned in, in some of those articles, my father was a television comedy writer, and part of my childhood was learning how to write jokes. And that's pretty much the way you write a joke. You take a joke that you like, 
and then you see what's the mechanism in it and what is inessential, and then you change the things that aren't essential, and if you change enough things, you've got yourself a new joke. I've never uh, thought of comedy writing in that way. I've never actually thought of the combination of comedy writing and mathematics and uh, the same thought before, actually. Well, actually, if you, if you go to the web, it turns out a lot of the writers for The Simpsons and other shows have were math majors as undergraduates and in some cases have, have advanced degrees in mathematics. If you do a Google search on that. Yeah, that, uh, that is... Very strange. Yeah, I, I believe in one of the Treehouse of Horror episodes, if I remember correctly, there was a false disproof of the Fermat's last theorem. There's yeah, they, they, they stick a lot of things in there. Uh, and it's not... They, they, there's some... You know, there's a famous story that when, when Ramanujan wrote Hardy, there were some things in his letter that Hardy said, well, I thought these had to be true because... Nobody could have imagined them if they were false. And there's there's some uh, comments on math that are made by people who have to know what they're talking about. It's not going to be a blind guess. Yeah, that's that's very true. At least I hope so. But I, I'm sorry to take us away from from mathematics here. Oh no, no, I I very much appreciate when we can stretch into other topics. As a matter of fact, I was just about to. Uh, you mentioned uh, multiple times. Uh, first, you uh, you quote uh, Arthur C. Clarke with uh, any smoothly running advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And yeah. I've noticed to a lot of people, math uh, can appear to be magic. And a good proof even to somebody who understands math can still seem magical. And uh, yeah. do you see any uh, kind of correlations as you do with comedy rank between uh, magic and mathematics? Well, uh, magic, I think magic, the art form, not magic, the actual thing that can make things disappear or levitate. Well, uh, magic is intentionally deceptive. And I think that most magicians will tell you that their goal is misdirection of your attention. I don't think that good mathematics is, is intentionally on this direction, although uh, there, there's another thing that I tell my, my classes. Uh, in the movie, this is Spinal Tap. The band Spinal Tap argues that they are the loudest band in the world because their uh, amplifier goes up to 11, and all other bands, the amplifiers stop at 10. And I think in mathematics, the degree of difficulty goes up to Aleph Null. <laughs> it, there's just there are things that you're never going to completely understand or that one mathematician is never going to completely understand even though they might be true and if you find a few of these things then you can spend a long time trying to think about them and it can be quite rewarding even if at the end you don't completely understand them now in teaching uh, that doesn't work so well because uh, I think that people understand a subject, if you give them a proof without giving some sort of intuitive correlative to go along with the proof, then it's not going to be very effective. Those are the proofs that seem like magic. Uh, in fact, in one of my early papers, I was correcting the galleys, and there was a mistake 
and one of my one of my theorems instead of proof it said poof and I thought that that might actually work out pretty well pretty <laughs> Okay, I have uh, one other one other uh, question about research here. You, uh, it it seemed like a bit of a throwaway sentence, but you mentioned uh, people being uh, irritated with the way someone has done something. Not irritated in a in a bad way, but just irritated in that it wasn't as elegant or wasn't done in the same way that they would have done it. Do you feel that in mathematical research, irritation can actually play a real part in the creation of better proofs or reworkings of, say, the four-color theorem, which has had so many proofs I, at this I, point? I think so. I think that you can see something and you can say, I believe it's true, but I don't think that's that's the best route to get there. And I think that could be an inspiration. Uh, I think that what works pretty well is when you have enough experience and you see two theorems that seem to rhyme even though they're in a different subject, then you may try to look to find some unifying thing that would prove both of them. Hey, um, well, it's long, it's that, long. That's hard to give over, over a phone conversation. <laughs> uh, as, as long as we're uh, talking about the ideas behind research, would you mind uh, sharing a little bit of what you are currently doing research in? Sure. Uh, Right now, or at least this week, I've been looking at a very old question, which is the representation of integers and rational numbers as a sum of two cubes of rational numbers or two cubes of integers. And the way this is often dealt with is that people, such as Euler, uh, come up with a parameterization or polynomials where if you take rationals for the values, you get a sum of two cubes, and every, in particular, this is a case of rational numbers that could be written as a sum of two cubes in two different ways. And I'm looking at it from the point of view of polynomials rather than rationals, just looking at uh, sums of two cubes of polynomials and what you can say about them. And with any luck, within a year or so, I'll have a paper saying some things about it. It, it's not, this is not the way to do research that I recommend for a graduate student because it is the topic is elementary enough that you're not completely convinced that somebody else didn't do it in 1887. And whereas I, as a professor, could survive the loss of a research paper because somebody did it uh, back when the Cubs were winning, uh, that would not be recommended for a graduate student because you're, you know, you're needing to establish yourself with something that'll be fairly airtight. Uh, does that answer your question? Oh yes, definitely. It's it's always it's always interesting hearing what people are working on at any given point in time. Uh, I, I also this is sort of related to the fact that uh, a few months ago I was greatly honored to get an invitation to speak at a sectional meeting of the AMS. In, uh, in Lexington, Kentucky next March. And I was asked to be the person who would also speak to the MAA meeting that's meeting at the same time. So I was thinking to try to find something that I could talk about on research that would be of interest to people who are MAA members, which means they're primarily college teachers and are not 
so much active in doing their own research. So the current title of my talk, and I think it's probably going to uh, stay there, is The Secret Lives of Polynomial Identities. And the idea is that polynomial identities may seem like they come from nowhere, but very often they can reflect some underlying structure. And uh, once I decided to give that talk, it inspired me to start thinking about some things that I might do after I had the title. So uh, that's a little bit of a background for that particular piece of research. Uh, better watch out, though. You might have uh, some people coming in expecting you to talk about their actual home lives. Well, uh, you know, I, I work with polynomials all the time, but they never tell me about their home lives, so I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know what polynomials do when they get home. That's, un uh, that's unfortunate. I imagine we could probably understand a whole lot more about mathematics if the numbers and the polynomials would just open up a bit more to us. Right. Well, you know, maybe maybe the first thing they do is they, they close the door and then they extract their roots, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so um, now one thing I want to want to bring up is the idea of collaboration. Now, this is this is something that's been on my mind specifically for a while now, especially with some of the some of the uh, research I'm doing currently. In that, collaboration seems very important. And when we think of the history of mathematics, we think of the big names. I mean, going all the way back to say Euclid, or more recently to say Leibniz, Gauss. Any of them, uh -huh. we, we think of the big name, but now math seems to have become a much more of a collaborative process. That's, that's very true. Uh, well, part of the part of the the thing is that the number of people doing mathematical research has expanded tremendously, and the amount of knowledge that people have is also much greater. You had people like like Gauss or uh, or Poincaré or Hilbert, who really understood a large fraction of the order of mathematical knowledge at their time. And that simply isn't possible anymore. Just because if, if you think of it as a sphere that's expanded, the, the surface is so much larger that the areas are further and further apart. Uh, where progress is made is usually by, is often made by combining things that other people have done and that's one of the reasons why you want to have a collaboration, because different people bring different sets of knowledge into, uh, into the subject. Uh, I had a very successful collaboration with two more senior mathematicians, uh, namely in the 80s and 90s, uh, Professor T.Y. Lamb, who just retired from Berkeley, and Professor M.D. Choi at Toronto. And we were looking at the, on the question of writing polynomials as sums of squares of polynomials. And we each brought a different expertise to the subject. Uh, Lamb was the expert on quadratic forms and on things algebraic, and Choi knew things from operator theory and matrices. And he had a variety of examples, and I had a, gave a variety of examples also. It's tricky to have a collaboration and make sure that everybody does a proportionate amount of work and gets a proportionate amount of credit for it. And that, that gets into the human aspect of mathematical work, which is often for mathematicians as challenging as the mathematical aspect. 
Oh, what um, challenges have you run up against in the human area of it? Well, I've been I've been quite fortunate. I, I've never had a fight with a co-author. Uh, I've known cases where people have been working together on something, and then one of the authors wrote a paper on their own, which they thought should, which the other co-authors felt they had had some input in and didn't get credit on. Uh, a problem really is time. Uh, there's a cliche that mathematical advances are made by mathematicians under the age of 30. And this certainly can happen. It's not a matter that mathematicians, I think, get less smart as they get older or less able to look at wild generalizations that might actually work. It's just that the other demands of being a professor become greater and greater. Writing letters of recommendation, writing referees reports, serving on various university and departmental committees, those take a lot of time, and that uh, the mathematicians under 30 are usually left alone for them. Uh, uh, I don't think I've completely answered your question, but unfortunately I don't have any... I don't have any juicy stories about it. Well, I, I, I think that you're quite fortunate that you don't, actually. Yeah, I, I do. I, I mean, I think I, I always think that I'm fortunate that I have a job because this is, I, I can spend all day talking about a subject I love. Even when I'm teaching calculus, which is, does not have a research component to it, I'm talking about a, just a very beautiful subject to people who want to know or who at least need to know the subject, so it's, it's, it's worthwhile. Uh, speaking of mathematicians under the age of 30, actually uh, well under at this point, you were a member of the first place team in the Putnam for two years running, I believe, and twice you were ranked individually in the top 10, and you have yeah. since uh, gone on to write for the Putnam, correct? That's correct. Okay, I, the university that I went to for my undergraduate degree did not uh, offer the Putnam. I know I've, right. I've, I've heard of it since, but could you explain a little bit to the listeners what the Putnam is? Okay, the Putnam is a math competition that's been going on since about 1940. Uh, William Lowell Putnam, who gave the original money for the prizes, uh, was initially interested in, in having some sort of academic competition on universities that would match the interest of athletic competitions. And the first competition he had was in English, and understandably there were difficulties in how you would evaluate the the papers, so he decided the next time he tried it to do it in math. And the story that I remember hearing was that the first competition was between Harvard and West Point. Uh, Putnam was a Harvard man, and he was very chagrined when the West Point team won so he decided to open it up to all universities in North and South America, which I think is, it may be available in a few other countries as well. It's, uh, it's a competition on the first September, the first Saturday of December. There are two sessions, two three-hour sessions, each of which with six problems. And I think in 60 years or 70 years, maybe two or three people have gotten every problem right. It's really, it, it's, it's very challenging. And at the same time, the 
the aesthetic of the of the Putnam is that all of the problems have to have short solutions. So it's a very sort of concentrated dose of cleverness. And it's not necessarily indicative of a, a good performance on the Putnam is not necessarily indicative of future mathematical production. I've known people who did much better than I did on the exam who finished their PhD and haven't really published any research, and I know people who I did better than who have been more successful as mathematical researchers. So it's just, it's a, it's a game. It's a contest. See if you can guess what the correct answer is with a correct proof and what, what the idea you need to know to do it. But at the same time, it also presents a lot of beautiful mathematics. The the, uh, the six-person uh, problem was actually put on the Putnam by Paul Erdős. I'm not sure if you know this, the, the uh, monochromatic triangle, if you two-color a six-graph. I've, I've not heard of the problem, but it sounds similar to other ones that I do know. Okay, the problem, I don't know if this was the way it was phrased on the Putnam, was uh, you have six people at a party prove that you either have three of them, each of whom have shaken each other's hand, or three of them, none of whom have shaken each other's hand. And that's, that's an early instance of, of a Ramsey, theory, Ramsey theorem, and I believe that Erdős was on the committee when he put that on. And the, I could give you the proof quickly if, if you don't. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, think of the people as being the six vertices of a graph, and you take the, the complete graph on six vertices, so you connect an edge between any two of them, and you make the edge red if they've shaken their hand and blue if they haven't. Take any one vertex. That vertex has five edges going out to the other five people, and... So it has to have at least three from one color, either red or blue. Let's say it's red. So you look at the three, the three edges going out from the vertex that are red. Now look at the remaining three vertices on the other side. If any one of them is red, you get a red triangle. If all of them are blue, you have a blue triangle. I do really like graph theory proofs. <laughs> that's a, that's a, it's a very beautiful theorem. Uh, if you work on it a little more, you can actually prove that it has to have two monochromatic triangles. But, but the proof there is a little less neat. When you were writing about uh, writing for the Putnam, when you were uh, writing problems for it, you uh, brought up some very interesting uh, points about uh, the creation of problems. And I was just wondering if you could uh, just... Uh, speak a little bit about what you would have to go through in order to write a problem for the Putnam. Well, uh, this was by now a while ago. Uh, I, I wrote for the Putnam uh, what I did whenever I got something that I thought of was an interesting mathematical idea. When you're doing research, ordinarily you take an idea and you try to make it as big as, you, as it can be, as general as it can be, and as all-encompassing as it can be. And for the Putnam, it's the opposite thing. You try to make a bonsai problem that contains the essence of the idea and is small enough to fit on the test. 
uh, often I would go to a, a seminar or a colloquium and not find myself very interested and just start doodling and see from the doodles uh, what I could do with it. Uh, one of them, I remember one time I was doodling pentagons for no particular reason, and then I wondered, well, what if I have a pentagon and one of the vert one of the outside edges is a right triangle? What's the maximum possible area that you could have for a pentagon inscribed in a circle so that two of the edges meet at a right angle? And that became a Putman problem. Oh, there you go. It's a fantastic use of a uh, boring seminar time. And and there was another time where I was interested in something I didn't write up for a long time, but I I, I put this story in the article about how uh, there was uh, there's something called the Stern sequence, and there's a famous topologist named Deron who wrote about it by using the following model, if you take a triangle and if you trisect the edges and snip the corners, you get a hexagon. And if you trisect the edges again and snip off the corners, you get a 12-sided figure. And then he looked at that limiting figure and uh, his interest was that the tangent line basically was a singular function that the, the resulting figure is flat almost everywhere. Its, its curvature comes at a discrete at at points rather than smoothly. And I looked at that and wondered what the area of the resulting figure was. And when I figured out how I could do that, I put it on the exam, and I was pretty happy because it was a problem that could actually be done using a geometric series. So technically, it was a pre-calculus problem, <laughs> and it was. It was placed at the position that one of the two hard problems on the exam was placed. And then a week before this particular competition, we had a visitor who gave uh, a math club talk, and he was talking about uh, Archimedes' computation of the area under a parabola, which he did by what he called the method of exhaustion. And I realized that my proof had actually stolen Archimedes' idea. Uh, and I was terrified that every person taking the exam who went to the talk would realize to apply it to this problem, and then uh, there would be an unseemly number of people from the University of Illinois who did well on, the, on that particular problem, which I thought was going to be a hard problem. Happily, as it turned out, nobody from here got it. <laughs> And only about 15 people in the country. So that that was a satisfying problem because, in a sense, once you see how to do it, it is straightforward. It doesn't require any arcane bit of knowledge. It's a different one. And there, there was a, another time uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, Richard Feynman was on the faculty at Caltech, and he was locally famous, but he wasn't nationally famous yet. He hadn't written the popular books, hadn't been on PBS as much as he was. Uh, he had a tradition where he would be happy to have the residence houses at Caltech give parties at his house as long as he would have free access to the alcohol. So 
my house was giving a party at his literal house, and he had done extremely well on the Putnam one. He had taken it as an undergraduate in the early 40s. So he wanted to know uh, what sort of problems were on the Putnam. I, sometimes when I tell the story, I imitate uh, Richard Feynman's voice, but I don't feel comfortable doing that for posterity. <laughs> so he said, what kind of problems are they asking on the Putnam? And I mentioned one which I had just taken a few months before and which I really enjoyed. Uh, the definition is that uh, a lattice point is a point all of whose coordinates are integers. And the problem on the Putnam was, suppose you have nine lattice points in three space, distinct lattice points in three space, prove that you can find two of them so that the line segment, open line segment connecting them also has a lattice point. And to make it short, the, the, the reason that that is true is that if you look at the parity of the lattice points in terms of even and odd, since you have nine lattice points and eight choices of even, odd, even, odd, even, odd, there have to be two points whose coordinates are congruent modulo two which means that the vector draw connecting them has even components, so halfway between those two points is another lattice point. That's another beautiful Putnam problem. And uh, so I gave it to, to Richard Feynman, and he thought about it for 10 seconds. He said, I give up, tell me the answer. And I told him the answer. And he said, that's beautiful. And interestingly, I've actually used that in my own research later on, that idea I liked so much, I, I remembered it, and then that came out, up in a couple of papers later on. Uh, and, I mean, speaking of the pie, I mean, it's for, it's for undergraduates, and you, have also, you also wrote a little bit about an introduction for teaching for teaching assistants, which I honestly wish I would have ran across about a year and a half ago at this point. Okay, uh, but on it there was there's one thing I wanted to ask about because it's uh, it was a piece of advice that I've actually run into the uh, opposite uh, thing with, and that is you you uh, tell TAs to show up well before class starts if possible. Yes, and you, and I've found uh, actually that well actually first I'll uh, I'll have you explain why you think that's a good idea. I think it's a good idea because it lets you take care of a lot of issues that otherwise somebody's going to make an office hours appointment for. It also, uh, I think that when you're teaching a class, you're providing a model for the work ethic that you expect your students to do. And uh, I'm teaching a large calculus class this semester, so this is actually the first time in 20 years that I'm working directly with TAs, and I told them at the beginning there are three things that they have to do, which are be prepared, be respectful, and be there. And I think that if you're there ready to start the class when the bell rings, and you have a chance to get settled in, but that, that starts the whole day off on the right foot. Uh, why? 
why is that considered not a good idea? I, well, for me, I, I definitely agree that getting there and being there by the time the class is supposed to start is very important. And I, I definitely do that. But I find that if I show up more than about two minutes before oh. that point, the students get very uncomfortable, silent, and start twitching in their seats. Well, you, you talk to them. I, I try, but I, I just get the distinct feeling, and I remember as uh, being an undergraduate quite recently, that that time was generally used to talk about the instructor. Oh. And to, and to give the students a chance to vent a little bit about issues that they're having without uh, the chance of being overheard by the instructor. Oh, well, uh, maybe I'm preventing my students from doing that. I don't, I don't know. But I, I invite them to ask what they want me to talk about in class. You know, it, it's an extra opportunity where someone might be comfortable in, in telling you that, well, I didn't really understand problem three in section two, that they would be more willing to say that before the bell than if formally you're standing in front of the, the room and saying, are there any questions on the homework? That's it. That's, it's a very good point. I'll, I'll definitely try showing up earlier and try to engage them a little bit more than I have before. Well, I mean, sometimes it's not possible, especially if, uh, if you've got a class the hour before. Um, I usually, well, I can arrange things. It's one advantage of being a professor rather than a TA is that you get a little bit of control over your schedule. And I, I've never... I once taught in two consecutive hours, and I didn't find it to be very successful. So I always have, I'm always free the hour before I teach. So I can get there as soon as the other class is out. Now, one thing that is, I think, very important is to erase the previous person's blackboard, because you have to establish that yours is the only class that's going on at the moment. And it can be very distracting to see somebody else's handwriting and and equations and such on the board. Yes, that now that I definitely agree wholeheartedly on. Now, on this uh, slightly uh, divisive note, I think we will probably uh, end up today. And I want to thank you very much for coming on the show, and also suggest that everyone go to your website. Uh, okay. The URL of which is uh math.uiuc.edu slash tilde r-e-z-n-i-c-k and read your very enlightening and very well done papers that you have up there thank you very much for your for your kind comments and good luck in your graduate studies thank you very much and thank you very much for your time well that is it for this episode of strongly connected components if you wish to know more about the guest on this episode, please visit the blog at sccmathpodcast.blogspot.com and you can email me at sccmathpodcast at gmail.com with any recommendations or feedback. The music on this podcast is the song Pie by the band Hard and Firm from their album Horses and Grasses. You can find them at hardandfirm.com. Finally, this podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License. Thanks for listening.